Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper, live at Nine Wheels Geek Fest. I'm Megan Lee with my co-hosts Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounson. We're very lucky today to be joined by Gillian Redfern, Lydia Gittins and Alastair Stewart to discuss barriers to women in science fiction, fantasy and horror publishing. As we are recording this session, we'd appreciate noise being kept to a minimum. We hope to have time for audience questions before we finish. Before we dive into the discussion, let's have some brief introductions from our guests. Shall we start with Gillian? Uh, hi, I'm Gillian. I'm the Publishing Director for the Victor Galantz imprint of the Orion Publishing Group. Um, I've been in publishing for 14 years, half of which in full-time employment. Um, and Lydia? Hi, I'm Lydia Gittins. I'm the Press Officer for the UK in Triton Books. I've worked in publishing for about six or seven years, two of which are in genre within publicity. Hi, I'm Alistair Stewart. I own Escape Artists Incorporated, which is a podcasting company that produces four shows that cover science fiction, fantasy, horror and YA, as well as a digital magazine that kind of covers all of them. I'm also a freelance genre fiction journalist. Excellent. So whether it's a real or perceived lack, female authors appear to be in the minority especially in speculative fiction genres. Certainly the publications most talked about and most often showered in accolades are by men. And basically today we want to discuss why is this still such a pervasive issue, assuming you think it is. Does everybody agree that this is an issue? Yes? I'm going to question the degree <laughs> to which it is an issue uh, for a whole range of reasons. Um, some of them are cultural, uh, some of them are whether or not it's changing. Um, we're very proud to publish authors including Max Fry and Aliette de Bordard, who are both hugely well-known, very, very highly acclaimed authors. Um, we also work with Sarah Pimbra, who's an award-winning high-profile author. We work with Sharon Harris and Marianne Singh, very high-profile. Robin Hobb is an extraordinary author who's very well-known. So I question the degree to which this is true, not whether or not there is truth to the statement. We came up with some ideas on what the bottlenecks might be if you know this is really an issue. So this lack of women publishing in the genre, is it that there aren't as many submissions from women? Are there not as many being accepted by agents who then might not be uh, accepted by publishers? And then we were also wondering about the marketing strategies and whether or not they fa favoured men over the female published uh, writers. So we're going to start with um, the number of submissions. So... Do you think that women are put off before they even start and that um, you know, maybe they, they perceive that male-dominated part of the industry so they, they don't even bother? There's an interesting uh, element that, that I, can, I can maybe bring to this as a, as a short fiction publisher. One of the things that I've seen across the period of time I've been working in the field is the beginning of a very slow but very definitive changing of the guard at short fiction genre magazines. I mean, the industry, it's, it's one of the oldest jokes in the book that one of the best-known science fiction magazines on the planet in the age of the internet is somehow still called Analog. Um, but <laughs> the Analog and, to a lesser extent, some of the others, because they, they have, been, have started to make changes, have ended up with almost this kind of ingrained ancestor wisdom where you have these magazines which are publications of record, and they're publications of record because they've been around for decades. And they end up... and. I, I want to make it clear, I, I don't think there's any malice that comes off it, but they end up almost coasting off a reputation that had gained its momentum two or three decades previously. And that, in turn, 
can tie into editorial mindset, which means you have editors who naturally gravitate towards authors that they know and have worked with before in most cases. Certainly with some of these magazines, those authors have been guys. Now, what we've seen across the last few years is the launch of magazines like Uncanny and Liminal. Um, and I would uh, be terribly un-British and mention our own publication for a moment, Mothership Zeta, which is co-edited by Mill Lafferty, Karen Bovenmeyer, and Sunil Patel, where suddenly you have this editorial changing of the guard, certainly at the short fiction end of the pool, where you have far more women involved at an editorial level and far more women involved at a slush and managerial level. And that that's starting to open a door that kind of mossed over as a result of the very weird backwaters that short genre fiction has been trapped in for a very long time. I think I can offer anecdotally entirely. Um, as a publicist, I do not deal with submissions. Um, I have no power to publish you, sadly. But um, I've definitely spoken with female authors in the past who have said that they upon receiving like a critique that perhaps has turned down a story, they are less likely to rewrite it and send it back in than my male authors on the counterpoint, who may well have had a critique on a manuscript, worked on it and send it back in, whereas women potentially start afresh and resend them. I think that's something, again, there's been studies on this about the fact that women are potentially more likely to start again rather than rehash something. And I think we may well see that, that men partly as a cultural thing, are perhaps more brought up to keep pushing, whereas women restart and refresh and may not want to resubmit within like an X amount of time because they don't want to seem like they're pestering or annoying, mm. which is not to say that anyone is in that way, but I think that might be a cultural thing in that sense. That's an interesting point. Well, Gillian, I know that you wanted to talk about sort of cultural attitudes towards women in publishing. So, I mean, do you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Well, I'm not sure it's um, culture about women in publishing specifically, um, but I think there is something in Western culture which is worth examining and publishing will be reflecting part of that. But I think uh, men can be and have been perhaps more resilient about rejection or critique or receiving a note in the post saying, thank you, this is for us, and may have been more persistent whether because we encourage men to be more competitive, whether because we encourage boys to be more competitive or challenge them more, uh, potentially, and that girls aren't encouraged to be as competitive and as determined and persistent in achieving something um, and maybe slightly easier to knock back or lose confidence more readily uh, than we see men, men doing, perhaps. Um, and we may be seeing that reflected in seeing more submissions from male authors and from female in these three genres, which is something that Galant sees when we open her submissions. We see more from men in fantasy, horror and science fiction. We see more from women in urban fantasy and YA. It may simply be that people are more comfortable writing that area and feel it's more a zone where they can be pushy or they can own it and be more comfortable, perhaps. I mean, this is speculation based on what we see, but I think we may be seeing something which is cultural and to do with Western culture more than a specific publishing bias in any way which is against women, whether it's uh, editors or it's, it's um, ways in which books are seen and promoted or whether it's agents. Um, I just wonder if that might be one of the things that we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. It's also much harder to, um, to, to do anything about. Inevitably, <laughs> we let's change the culture. Absolutely, let's change the culture. But 
That's going to take a few more decades, I suspect. Mm. We've, um, I've spoken to some agents before who said that they hated receiving submissions from authors that did um, initials, which obviously kind of became even more popular again after J.K. Rowling and that. And do you think that, um, or do you still see that a lot, getting uh, submissions in from uh, either initials or even sort of, you know, yeah, pseudonyms or or, or gender neutral. Yeah, like Robin Hobb, you know, she is wonderful, but I thought she was a man. (laughs) A lot of people, I'm a bookseller, (laughs) and a lot of people still think she's a man, (laughs) even though she's so famous. Uh, I think we see every permutation. Uh, we, we see initials, we see full names, we see pseudonyms, um, and actually I don't remember seeing notably more pseudonyms or initials from, from one gender or the other. Um, I think it's, it's one of those things when people come to us directly, it's whatever they, however they want to present themselves. Um, and uh, sometimes people do that because they don't want the content they don't want their friends or their relatives or their next mm. neighbours to associate them with certain content. They want to have a division between what could become a professional life and a private life. Um, and fair enough. Um, and other people are very happy to, to own it and they want their name on the, on the cover or associated with their work. Great. I mean, that's quite often that's a question for the, for the author more than anything else. It's whatever they're comfortable. Um, and we also see some authors who write in different genres who will then write under a pseudonym or they'll insert initials, so Joanne Harris and Richard Morgan have both introduced a middle initial to di- distinguish themselves between genres. We published Joanne K. Harris, and we published Richard K. Morgan. No, Joanne M. Harris. Wrong <laughs> <laughs> you can't be the same for both, and Richard K. Morgan, and both of them done it to distinguish between yeah, genres. Yeah, like Ian Banks. Ian Banks, yeah. exactly the same. Um, and yeah, we have Victoria Schwab, who we publish exclusive BE in the UK, because that's what she's known as, but um, particularly in the US, she is Victoria Schwab on her YA and BE Schwab on her adult, and she does that as a shorthand to say, this is aimed at a lower, like, not like it's a younger age group, so the content in my adult fiction may not be entirely crossover, not necessarily a warning, but like that's how she distinguishes, and I think... Again, um, as a publicist, I've never had someone come in with a pseudonym or initials and that be an issue. Like, you assume that they have reasons to do that. Gillian touched upon including enormity. Like, you know, they may not want to necessarily have their professional LinkedIn, like, name connected with, like, what they write. And, like, you know, that is everyone's absolute right. Just as as a kind of aside to this, the... The, the single most horrifying thing I've ever seen at the convention was Lancome a couple of years ago. And it was a, a panel about essentially this, um, female authors and whether or not they have much more difficulty breaking into the industry. And it was great. And about halfway through the panel, a guy comes in, walks halfway down, sits absolutely middle of the aisle. And you could feel certain people in the room go, I think this is about to go sideways. <laughs> five minutes later, about a good 25 minutes before the Q&A, he sticks his hand up. And the moderator goes, yeah. And I mean, if any of you have seen Chasing Amy, the kind of infamously, just magnificently terrible Q&A that opens that, it was very nearly that. Because he, he stood up, stuck his, hand, stuck his hand up and went, I have a question. What is it? Couldn't you all just write under guys' names? And, and the entire room just went, oh. 
Pastor is clutching his face right now in <laughs> desperation. Uh, the, they were very polite to him. They were far politer to him than he maybe deserved. And two minutes later, he left the room. I think possibly the country. <laughs> well, I have a personal um, aspect to this because actually when I um, uh, submitted to my agent, I submitted under L.C. Hansen, um, which is my middle, well, my two first initials. Um, and then we, we had a talk about that and he said, okay, we'll, we'll go on submission like that. And then when I got my publishing contract and I talked to my editor, Bella, about it, um, she asked me about the initials and I said, well, you know, I thought maybe it's a good thing to, to do the initials. I've seen other women doing the initials. I don't, I'm writing an epic fantasy, which is traditionally quite, you know, I, I don't want to, it's a terrible thing, I don't want to alienate male readers because I'm using a, a young female protagonist. It's going to be, you know, I want to kind of get as many readers as possible. And she said, well, you know, we've kind of, we've got a niche where we don't have that many um, women, you know, writing uh epic fantasy with, with young female protagonists and the fact that you are effectively a young woman yourself that's something that we could you know capitalize on and 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 go with and i said well you know i'm really happy to to put my name on the cover and so that's that's where we went in the end um but it was it was an actual we actually did have to have that that talk about you know whether it was something that you know would have consequences or whether you know it, we should change you know we should stop hiding behind initials and say no but you know there are not there are just as many women writing in this genre as there are men. So stop hiding, kind of way. Because that's the only reason I would have uh, ever considered going with my initials, is to try and you know, be a kind of gender neutral mm. thing. It's just historically I've seen women do it, like J.P. Jones. And N.K. Jemison still uh, does her initials. So, uh, but yeah, no, I've, I've stuck with Lucy. Well, I'm a bit like Lucy as well, in that when I first started writing, I went... Maybe I should do initials because I wanted to submit a short horror story and everywhere I looked there were just men and I was like, oh well, will it look a bit weird? Will people think it's really soft if it's a girl? And so I thought, well, I'll do it because my full name is Charlotte Lucy Bond. Um, and put going back to what Gillian said, I actually practice as a solicitor under the name of Lucy Bond and I went, if I put my middle initial into writing horror, there is a chance it will be linked back. So I'm probably better off taking the risk as a woman writing in horror than I am as trying to, somebody coming up going, what's your middle initial? And then somehow finding it out on the internet and me getting struck off by a solicitor for bringing it into disrepute <laughs> by writing about, I don't know, minotaurs or goodness knows what else. So, uh, so yeah, but it was, it's interesting. I wonder how many guys really worry about that kind of thing. I did get told that Lucy is a girly name, apparently. My, <laughs> my middle name is Claire, and there was a, a say, well, do you want to go as Claire Hansen on your birth? I said, not really, it's not my name. <laughs> But apparently Lucy is, because uh, Pan Mac also published like Lucy Diamond, and I think they just had that in their heads, and she's much more girly, obviously, books than, than, than epic fantasy. Um, but yeah, I'm In my experience, male writers worry just as much, but they're rarely asked about it. Ah. So um, I've, I've, it's, it's almost the way you see uh, celebrities, and the, the red carpet is all who made the dress, who made the dress, who made the dress, not made your beautifully tailored suit or why are you not wearing a beautiful tailored suit mm. Mr. Bond or whoever else <laughs> um, I think there can be there can be a similarity in interviewing approaches where the questions which are asked are different and it's rare that a male author is asked how he in fact it's less rare than it was um, the male author is asked how he, how he balances cooking for his family with the time that's necessary to devote to writing and it's still quite common I think for 
internal to Outspec, the balances between household or work life and their need to find privacy and quiet time for writing. Mm -hmm. Actually, those authors who I know who, who work at home and are full-time writers experience exactly the same pressures because if they are at home full-time and there's childcare or there's house maintenance to do, whoever is at home does it, which I think is a fantastic change. But we're not perhaps asking the same questions equally with authors in the same situations. I think that's a fantastic point, and I think I speak for all the girls at Breaking the Glass Slipper that if you've got any male authors out there who are listening to this who'd like to get in touch and share their experiences, it'd be fascinated to maybe have one girl who's gone through it and one boy and see exactly how their experiences are the same or very different. I mean, I've certainly, this is a title and it's a previous job, have a male author who writes under a pseudonym, like initialised, because he did not, like, because his job was disconnected and he did not want that to be connected mm. there. Um, I'm not going to say who because that's the reason he did it yeah. but it was the one instance of like he was very much said this straight up mm. and I don't think I've had that before with female authors in the way, same way that we might actually ask so I think there definitely is like as you said like there are different questions being asked I think it was Edgelet this year where, Pete and, where Emma Newman and Pete Newman interviewed one another and brilliantly the first question Emma asked was so Pete how do you balance being an author and a dad? <laughs> I want to know how he ha like does that with the butler mostly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference of Tea and Jeopardy, which you should all check out if you like podcasts. Mm. Very definitely. So I actually am even more of a nerd than uh, most people. Yeah, it's, it's quite sad. So I actually created a spreadsheet <laughs> with a list of all the books that I've recently read digitally just because that was slightly easier to get hold of information wise than actually writing down everything that I had on my my physical bookshelves and I just wanted to actually look at you know the numbers of women writers and then looked at the number of female versus male protagonists and then looked at the difference between the two so yeah this is proper nerd nerdy spreadsheet it was beautiful with, 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 with the graphs there were graphs oh, I, I even excellent. I actually copied the data into Minitab to oh do proper God. statistical analysis on it. Yeah, this is full-on nerd right here. I'm sorry, I feel like <laughs> I need a glossary for this. <laughs> going over my head. Um, yeah, so, but what I found there was, at least from my reading, and this is really bad because I've actually tried to make a point of reading more uh, books written by women, especially in the last year, um, but I found a lot of them were by men unsurprisingly. Um, but what I did find is that a, the majority of the books that I had by written by women featured either male protagonists or a mixed ensemble cast rather than women writing a female protagonist. And I wondered if that's because women are concerned a little bit about writing for a female market or being pigeonholed into that um like you know like lucy was saying earlier you know write a young woman writing about a young woman and you don't want to sort of exclude other um audience members so you know i was just wondering what you thought about that yes i, I think there's a, there's a couple of quite interesting pieces of granularity to look at in there. The, your, your point about ensemble cast is especially interesting and that's I say that as someone who uh, was essentially raised by a TV show in Northern Exposure, Midnight Caller and Hill Street Blues. So I'm, I'm kind of programmed to naturally gravitate towards ensembles. 
the the thing which I've I've noticed because I, I spent a little bit of time when you sent me notes out thinking about this is that in that respect you're absolutely right. An awful lot of the books written by female authors have an extremely and I would imagine, I suspect very carefully balanced mm -hmm. ensemble to appeal to as many people as possible. And I mean the, Lucy's fantastic debut novel springs instantly to mind uh, it's having a really really interesting central cast uh, Jen Williams it's okay um, <laughs> Jen Williams Copycat series does the same yes, thing yeah. uh, Liz de Yaga's um, fantastic YA tr trilogy does the same thing and Cameron Hurley's incredibly magnificently grumpy and unpleasant and utterly <laughs> essential Belldarm Apocrypha again it's I, I wonder whether the thing which naturally leads, to, leads me to gravitate towards that is that it's that kind of, here is the central cast of the thing. Familiarity that you get with the ubiquity of TV drama is one of the reasons why that's so popular. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that as well, because I just read um, Becky Chambers' A Long Way to a Very Small Planet. Small, yes. Well, small Angry Planet, yes. Um, <laughs> and that, again, is a, is a cast, and it... It's very reminiscent of Firefly. And, you can and almost see, see the yeah. opening credits, can't you? Yes, yeah. you can, yeah. Well, I think it'd be, I can't remember which one of you it was, whether it was Lucy or Megan, but you sent round an article um, about a mother who got asked the same question about her by her son, saying, Mum, why do we always read books by women? And she, which one of you was it? Was it? That was Megan. Was it? <laughs> I do remember when they went through their bookshelves yeah. and had a look. And actually, it was quite a small percentage that was yes. actually written by women. And of those, they had, you know, like you say, an ensemble cast or, or female. But from this little boy's perception, yeah. even this was too much. And it had stuck. But then, is it stuck in his mind because it was too much and it was too awful, or because they were the ones that were really powerful and, and stayed with him? It would have been an interesting question if you'd asked, you know, why? Why do you remember the female characters? Why? What about this book over here by a man, written by a man about men? Why don't you remember that one? Why? Why does it not stick in your mind? But I, I, like to, I like to think it's because the, the female ones were obviously better. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> but it was a very interesting article. I think we need to put a link to that in the uh, end. Will do. So um, what about marketing and things? So uh, I work in academic publishing. So I know when it comes for us, we have terrible marketing budgets. But <laughs> it's sort of decided uh, before the book goes to in, even into production... The editorial people just sort of uh, try to, I don't say guess, but educated estimates of how much a book will sell. And I'm wondering, you know, about how that is sort of established in terms of sort of debut authors, established authors. But when it comes to debut authors, is there a difference when um, estimating how much a book will sell based on gender? No, is the very <laughs> simple answer. Um, I cannot comment and will not comment on individual like individuals that we publish or in general. Um, it's not something that we can comment on as kind of professionals representing our industry. But um, I have never, ever, ever had a sit-down meeting where gender came into it in any way. It will be based on books that we have done well, that we think sit well among that list and are comparable ones that we're excited about, which is all of them, but it's there's a lot of discussion that goes into marketing. Um, gender is not one of those discussions that I have ever had personally, it has to be said. Um, 
and it's not something that I can really comment on massively other than saying that we have a magic eight ball and <laughs> yes, I would I would agree with that that when when I have conversations with my marketing team um, the conversation is about the book and the conversation is how we convey the content of the book and who we're trying to convey it to um, and when we look at uh, demographics which sometimes we have the chance to do um, we don't look at the gender of readers because readers' gender isn't isn't something that we can target. Um, we can go to a publications and say we'd like to create an advert. We can go to blogs or we can go to podcasts and say we want to try and approach your readers. But there's no way to distinct. There's no way to target male readers rather than female readers. It's a genre where everyone is in, is accessible in the same way. So we look at book buying behaviour, regularity of book buying, preferred format. Uh, preferred retailers is something we might we might look at for specific uh, genres of book. So, uh, for example, uh, W. H. Smith's is fantastic for YA fiction. Absolutely brilliant. So, working with them, if we have a great new YA author, is key. Um, and when we're looking at that age group, it all goes into the same section through the same retailer. We're trying to reach those readers through the same outlets. Um, it's about our message is about how do we convey what this book is about, how it feels to read this book, how exciting it is, or, or how engaging or how moving um, the story is. And that's, that's how we construct uh, a marketing message and a publicity message, because we can't, we can't define it more, more narrowly than that. Uh, we have to go on who, who's buying and responding to the, to the books and the content and how we might reach them, which I guess is is the opposite way round to the way people usually think about how we market books. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you might have come up from the other, from the other angle. Mm. Yeah. And like every book is different. Like a marketing plan for one book will not work for the other. Um, that's about content more than gender. I'm like, I'm so afraid. <laughs> what about when you have, say, you know, a big female character, like female protagonist versus male protagonist? Would that at all come into it? Or, no. It might, it might come into the uh, cover design because yeah. you want to convey what's, what's in the book. Um, so um, that might be an element of the discussion of how to best convey what's, what's going on. But equally, we have, we have books by, by authors of any gender, um, which might be space opera with a giant quest stories. Actually, you're going to go for a big landscape or a wacky like ship on the cover because it's the conventions of the genre is much mm -hmm. everything else, and you want to speak to those readers. And once once you've got them to pick the book up, they can discover they can discover the content or they can discover um, elements which they might not have chosen to read, but they've been engaged by the rest of the package. And you just sort of slide some things in. Oh, hey, turns out you like this. <laughs> Sorry, you go. Oh, well, I was going to say as well, I would say like in a very positive way as a publicist, um, increasingly the younger bloggers that I'm talking to are predominantly female as well. Like there's a lot more women bloggers that have been coming forward and asking for books for me even in the last six months than I've seen previously. And I think that that's like a hugely positive thing. Mm. And there's a lot of them who are dedicated to making sure that they want to be like, they want to feature a book by a female writer or a fe with a female protagonist. So... I think that's a hugely positive thing when we're talking about marketing, if we are talking about kind of barriers in that side. I, I really just wanted to pick up on, on something that, that you both touched on, which is the, the book blogging community, which is one of the several dozen hats I sometimes wear. 
And one of the, the things which I've really responded to very positively, and all the book bloggers I know have done the same thing, is more and more it's not so much gender that a book is being marketed with. It's, I, I want to use the word mischief. The, the, the two books I've, I've been most impressed by so far this year uh, there, there is a, a fantastic Michael Crichton-style horror novel called The Hatching by Ezekiel Boone, which I, I, I devour super trashy stuff like this. And I say trashy from a place of absolute love. I, I, I really do. And this thing shot to the top of my, my TBR pile because I opened the packet, the book came out, I went, oh, it's a book called The Hatching with some spiders on the front. And then the two plastic spiders fell out and shrieked. <laughs> and that... Instantly, <laughs> just you know, and I, 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 I giggled all the way through it. It's, it's magnificent fun, and a big part of that. Hello, my two evil publicists thing because I actually followed it's not my book, it's Jillian's book, but I actually followed the hashtag just to laugh at all of the reaction shots on Twitter because <laughs> I enjoyed it so much. What Real. was the hashtag so that we can all have a look? It's just the hatching, like oh, people yes. like basically freaking out. Like, it was this evil cackle. Like, I'm just like, I'm a sliver and high. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed it, and like as a publicist, I love it when you have moments like that where you can absolutely just see like kind of the blogging community going like, "Oh my god!" And I, I enjoyed it immensely. And every book blogger I know who got sent that not only really enjoyed it because it's huge fun, but really enjoyed being terrified senseless by it. <laughs> it, it was great, and the, there was that, and there was also a, a book I will carefully not name the actual author of because the marketing for this was brilliant, and uh, it was sent out under the hashtag listen, no, not listen, read without prejudice. And all you got sent was a book with a black and white cover with a very simple message on the front, which was essentially, can you read this with no preconceptions? And I did. And it was great. And I now know who wrote it. And Were you surprised? Not entirely, but more than I was expecting to be. Which was, but just stuff like that, where you're, yeah. Um, <laughs> We should just say that uh, Lee was L saying, come later. Oh, no, I was like, write it down and slide it. I'm that impatient. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but stuff like that, where you are engaging very, very directly with the book blogging community, and at times frightening them, because we enjoy that, uh, <laughs> is, is so great. And it, it, it's very, very simple marketing, but it's marketing that instantly gives you this huge groundswell of goodwill. And, and also, so many shots of, of terrified book bloggers hiding from plastic spoilers. <laughs> I still have them. They, they, have you named them? No, but they will be moving house with me shortly. <laughs> Are you going to terrify the removal men? <laughs> Pass on the fear. Well, I am now. <laughs> we could just hide them. Like the new people. Just <laughs> 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 it's interesting what you say, because I review for Ginger Nuts of Horror, and um, oh, we've got... Side. Thank you. Um, and we've got Alison Littlewood's new book coming out, and I am already excited to read it. Not this because I said, "Oh yeah, I, I'll take that one," and then it came off my list. It sounds really good, but she's been posting pictures on her website and on the Facebook page of this beautiful-looking book that they're sending out, and I'm like, "Am I going to get one of those?" She's like, "Yeah, yeah, we're sending them out to this, this, this person," and I'm like, "Yours is on the way," and I'm like, "Alison, like so excited," and I'm already hyped up about reading this book because it's got this beautiful cover and because they thought about it and sent it out. And it's just, it's just wonderful. Station Eleven was another one for me. Mm. Because, that, again, that was such a beautifully designed book. And I know that there was a small amount of us that were sent out with an artifact from the novel within it. Mm. And being able to engage a community like that and 
just gain people's interest. Mm. And I mean, you know, book, book bloggers are very easy to gain the interest of. You just go, do you want a free book? Yes. But when there's another element to it, it, mm. it just, it, it transcends increasingly genre. You know, you go, that looks really interesting and it's designed in a fun and cool way. And I'd like to read that and have opinions about it. I mean, um, with Sarah Pimbra, you've done that whole 13 minutes with the uh, hashtag WTF. It's a different book. There's oh, two Sarah Pimbra campaigns at the moment. So oh. 13 minutes is her YA novel, which is absolutely extraordinary, about the horrible things teenage girls do and do to each other and are capable of, mm. um, which is gripping and brilliant, and it's just been optioned for... Uh, Film by Netflix. Yes, it's all. Which is fabulous. Absolutely. Um, but the uh, WTF, that ending, uh, yes. is for Behind Her Eyes, that which is her thriller, is. which is coming up from HarperCollins. Oh, um, no, I'm sorry. Which, no, no, it's fine. Oh. It's, a, it's an absolutely gripping thriller. She's getting fantastic reviews for it, and I really highly recommend it. But also, it's Sarah. So when someone says that ending, it really will be a humdinger of an ending. Um, and it's great when you see these things catch people's imagination and people see the hashtag. And you can almost see reviewers and bloggers and readers being like, oh, can it really be that good? It can't really be that good. And then someone who's, who's been a little bit reticent on Twitter would be like, I read it and that ending, <laughs> that ending's amazing. And you think, well, great. It's, it's really gathering um, some, some momentum and some excitement and early buzz. Hmm. And um, I, I, it is an extraordinary read. So absolutely, Sarah Pimbra, hooray. Definitely. I think Sarah's another really wonderful example, actually, um, of a female author who's done so well in the genre over here in mm. terms of not just commercially but like she is such a staple of conventions over here like and she's lovely which doesn't hurt but um <laughs> i think like again like when we're talking about gender like sarah is a brilliant example of somebody who like publishes as sarah like mm. there's no confusion there let's face it um yeah. But as someone who comes out consistently on the scene, is consistently asked to be on panels, and she's very, very good. And I think that she's kind of a wonderful example, I think, of 2016, like this, like, you know, like 21st century female crossover author. She writes YA, she writes crime, she writes horror. The fairy tale retellings. Yeah. <laughs> we hate her, right? But, um, <laughs> Too talented. But yeah. <laughs> You see, that's, I'd say, that's a really fascinating example of what women do. Mm. Because we're like, oh, she's really talented and amazing, but for God's sake. Oh, I know I hate anyone who's talented. It's I, I rarely hear a group of men do the same thing. Oh, self-definitely. No, I, I do. Rarely, yeah, true. I'm, yeah. I rarely hear groups of men that say, oh, wow, so-and-so, who's a, a peer professionally, mm. they're amazing, they're talented, they've got this film deal, they are... They are um, still fit and have all their teeth in their hair. I hate them. I hate them. You occasionally hear it as a joke. I occasionally hear it as a joke. I hear I, I women do Sarah, it. I was I'm joking. Yeah. Just yeah. 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 <laughs> but I occasionally hear it as, as a group of men where one of them goes, ha, 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 oh, I hate them. Yeah. It, I think, I think when, you have, when you have women talking about another woman who's successful, there is a knee-jerk, or there can be a knee-jerk. Really? And I wonder if it's partly because women feel more pressure to be brilliant at everything. And when we see someone who appears to be achieving things, we feel like we're failing mm. rather than being like, mm. fantastic, we can do it. Mm. And that's, I think, it's one of the cultural mm. things where you then think, oh, I won't submit that book. Oh, I won't write that blog piece. Oh, I won't, I won't accept that panel 
I won't accept that interview because somehow I'm not, I'm not worthy of that, I'm not, not right for it. Someone greater than me might take that place. I think that's, that's the sort of thing I would, I would love us all to stop doing. I'd say that was, I'm not to pounce on anyone or <laughs> anything, but I think it's such a, if, we, if, if women in the genre stopped doing that, and indeed in the world stopped doing that, well, for one thing, the gossip magazines would be out of business. <laughs> I think that holds up exactly actually sorry Sarah <laughs> I'm using this as an example but like Sarah is brilliant and Sarah's never like as far as I've seen at least in the years that I've encountered on the scene like she takes those opportunities and she does what she's very good at um, on top of writing brilliant books and like I think she's a great kind of example to discuss in that sense that like as Gillian said, like my silly joke, which was a joke, but like no, but you're completely right that like it's such a knee-jerk kind of ridiculous joke that I just made it because it's kind of cultural language. I think we could all be a little bit more observing, bro. <laughs> and now I just sound like a ridiculous fangirl. Um, she's okay. Bad <laughs> <laughs> happy medium. <laughs> I want to pick up on, on what you said about um, not hearing guys say it, because I have heard guys say it, but now that I think about it, the guys that I hear say it are the really kind of, the ones who are quite successful, who are quite bolshy, who are quite chatty anyway, and it makes me wonder if a lot of guys are thinking it, but not necessarily saying it. They I think are. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are, trust me. So what's your experience? Um, really kind of half and half. I'd, I've had, I've, I've been down that road, I, you know, I've, I've found myself, um, going for pseudo-talking heads like, and, and looking at uh, guys in the field's careers and going, why is that not me? And, I mean, the thing which particularly resonated with me was, was your thing of, you know, after a while, you, it's very easy to instinctively feel like you're not good enough and someone else deserves it more. And I had a very long period in my life where that was exactly how I approached everything. And it's taken a very, very long time and a fairly serious life reboot to change that around, and even now I still have it. And I, I wonder, I wonder whether what we're actually looking at here are two issues running in parallel, almost. That there is this this issue where you know everything that, that you talked about, where women instinctively go, really, when uh, they come across a woman that's successful, is one of them, and whether the other one is that an awful lot of genre fiction is crammed full of people who are very articulate and very talented and very creative and have about a millimetre of self-confidence at any given time. <laughs> there, there's a, a Robbie Williams quote of all people that really resonates with me, which is, uh, he, uh, this was a ludicrous amount of time ago as well, where he said, any given day I don't know which one I'm going to be on the way to the stage. Some days it's a gladiator, some days it's a mouse. And I know exactly how that feels. You know, there are days where I go, yeah, great, I got this. And there are days where it's taken me four hours to write an email, and, and the email's two lines long, and the second line is, bye. You know? <laughs> it does seem to be that it's a very human experience, and I think it is a, it's a very brave man who talks about it, I think, maybe, and it is more common to be expressed by women. I think Definitely. it is harder to articulate for men, um, but no less felt, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does, yeah. yeah. That's probably one of the first times at a genre convention I've ever heard a guy express those feelings in that way. 
like quite it's not just like in that sense but like articulately and actually like it's a very universal thing I completely understand that but it's very rare that you have a male author or a male person like a male person in like kind of publishing sphere who says I totally have this like and I guess that's why we make the jokes that we make like it's easier as a woman to do those kind of ones because we've been brought up saying this as a teenager and like it's not shot down it would be awesome to find a balance in which everyone can human yes. experiences god it sucks <laughs> <laughs> how can we all become more confident and just appreciate who we are um i you know in terms of like culture and you know what what can we be doing what can fans be doing what can readers be doing what can other writers be doing to sort of improve this and and how are we going to make sure that people feel confident about coming and, and submitting their work, feel confident about being a woman writing genre fiction, as well as men writing genre yeah. fiction. We love the men as well. <laughs> um, and, and for readers to feel comfortable picking up books authored by women and featuring young women, you know, and being able to bond with them. I, mean, I, I read a blog post recently by Emma Newman, who actually overheard, um, when she was doing a signing in a bookshop, she overheard a man say, oh no, I don't want to buy that book because it has a female lead character and I will not be able to identify with that female lead character. Mm -hmm. And she said she just could not believe it because women have been identifying with, with male lead characters <laughs> forever. <laughs> so how, how do you, I mean, obviously, you, 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 I mean, I, I can't say whether that's a, you know, he may well be, probably is, certainly in the minority, but it, if he exists, there will be other people with that opinion. And how do we change that? How do we make men feel more comfortable with picking up a book? You know, with, with, with your, a character of the opposite gender as a lead. Well, I wanted to pick up on something that Gillian said earlier on about cover art. And um, Adrian Tchaikovsky is um, obviously a writer who's done lots of good stuff. But he wrote Guns of the Dawn. And again, I was sent a review copy. And it's uh, about... I'll try to summarise it, but not give too many spoilers. It's pretty much what happened if Elizabeth Bennet didn't just sit home and say, but went out and went to war and picked up a rifle and went onto the battlefield and kicked some ass. But... You look at the book cover and it's got two cross guns mm. on front of it. And you would not, given what, because Adrian's written some fantastic stuff, but you wouldn't necessarily think that would be the angle he was going for. And just looking at the book cover, and I know that you were saying earlier, Jimmy, about kind of slipping things under the, under the cover, and you pick up this book and you get partway through and you go, oh, it's female. But actually, I quite like Adrian, so I'm going to give it a go and I'm going to keep going and then actually find that they enjoy it. So I wonder if that might be, you know, cover art and, and the way things are displayed or portrayed to us. I didn't know what it was about, and that surprised me. Because yeah. I saw the cross guns and just made an assumption that it was quite male and didn't have a female main character. That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. So that's simply just seeing an image and making a cultural association with, with that image. Um, I am not Adrian's publicist in any way, but I would also <laughs> say that in terms of that kind of cover art, it does sit with the other cover art he has, which mm -hmm. is always a consideration. It's not yep. necessarily gender washing, but like if you look at the later ones that come out, the recent one with the wolf, which is also black and gold. Gorgeous cover. Yes, beautiful. Gorgeous, but like we're not necessarily, when we look at those, particularly when we have an author in a sequence, that we tend to do them so that when they sit on the shelves, they sit as a group like we would only I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn for you guys but um, we would only really I feel deviate massively if it was a complete change in genre to, like that he was writing so if we had someone who was known for epic fantasy who then wrote a space opera we would we would do a big different cover if we didn't like kind of do kind of the V Schwab type thing where they 
have a slight shift in name ever so slightly where they initialize or they bring a middle initial in. Um, so it may not be that there was an attempt in any way to kind of gender wash there will have been like I assume kind of a series artwork consideration like what works with the other books that they've had oh yeah I wasn't suggesting it was gender washing I was just saying it was oh a it's nice... not mine so if they've <laughs> done it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever the motivation behind it I like the way that they've taken it and not gone oh it's got Elizabeth Bennet on the front we better stick like a woman in full course a full you know Outfit and holding a gun, a gun. Yeah, yeah. smoking gun yeah. exactly but we're yeah, going to so make it the I'm difference between that and uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies yeah. and the heaving bosom that was in itself its own character I feel like <laughs> it was just very prominent all the way through I assume they're waiting for the movie tie in no? <laughs> um. I mean how often have you found has this ever happened where you know a, a cover art decision has been changed because of sales because of it's been missed targeted because obviously if you're trying to target a particular audience or as wide as possible or and it hasn't worked I mean obviously that has to then be revised and you know and maybe put something out again has that happened that, I mean, that happens that happens relatively regularly that you want to reassess how you're selling your books yeah. and you want to have another look at the way you're presenting it the covers a vitally important tool what's really frustrating is that when you get uh, sales figures if, if there's a problem it doesn't come with a note saying 90% of people who, who picked up this cover hated the pink bow on the front. That's, that's the element that's, that's wrong. Or 90% of the readers loved the pink bow and felt it wasn't big enough. Or the giant blue crossbow or whatever element of the, of the cover. So you can't, you can't look at it and say, this is, this is where this image is not representing the book correctly. This is where it's not compelling readers. Um, you, have to, you have to guess. And even, even when we've gone to, as we have, we've, we've gone to our market researchers and said, we'd like to test these covers. Uh, what, do, what do readers think of it? Um, the results always still come back as being quite confused and quite uh, sometimes misleading, sometimes unhelpful, sometimes blinding the obvious, uh, where they say this terrible cover does not inspire us and this brilliant one does. Um, but also the, the cover has a really difficult job to do because you're trying to tell someone who hasn't read the book what it will be like and why they might like it and that may not be an accurate representation of the book at all it could be it could be it could be wildly in some cases misrepresentative of the content of the book in its details and its specifics but its job is as much to sell as to represent so it's an art literally it's an art I'm assuming we can go back to audience questions in a moment, but I just wanted to go back to your initial question about kind of what we can do. Um, and just sort of just to make the point that I think in general, science fiction and fantasy, when we talk about particularly mainstream publications, we get such a small billing as it stands. And actually, I would say in general, as a fandom, the thing that we can really do is what's happening here today, this wonderful event, this podcast, that if you really love something, shout about it. Like if you're very passionate about a female author who you feel is being overlooked, like, tell everyone, like, and that's why the blogging community is such a valuable, I don't want to say resource, but, like, kind of a partnership for publishers, that's why we really do value it, but I think, not to put the onus on everyone listening at home, <laughs> um, but to say that I really do think that is, like, one of the best ways that we can do it is grassroots changes that we've been seeing increasingly over the years, um, and that it's not just about female pleasuring, it's about pushing like how interested you are. Um, 
Peter Sullivan said, well, like, back in January, did an amazing piece in The Independent before it shut down, where she went and interviewed writers about writing the science and science fiction. And I think the more that we engage in the kind of the mainstream as well and really support pieces like that, the more that we will see female authors and science fiction authors in general and fantasy authors being given these opportunities. So I think that's incredibly important. And also, just to build on everything that's already been said, the... I mean, again, I come at this very much from the kind of short fiction and podcasting community side of things, but there is a real sense of that grassroots enthusiasm that you get through the blogging community and you get through word of mouth starting to engage with people who have increasingly large audiences. Uh, magazines like Liminal and Uncanny have done excellent work in this field. And with my self-promo hat on, we've just opened submissions to Artemis Rising 3, which is our yearly... Um, month-long celebration of female and non-binary authors and we've done this for three years or we will do as of next year and it's my favorite part of the year for three very important reasons firstly we get a, a huge swathe of really fantastically good work through which is incredibly varied and diverse secondly it is absolutely necessary and the fact that we get three or four complaints without fail about a, pro about a product we give away for free being too feminine <laughs> every single year bears that out and thirdly I get a month off it's brilliant <laughs> because we it, 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 we staff the shows at every level entirely with women you know we have female hosts we have guest hosts come in we have female narrators we have female authors and it's just it's a brilliant event and I'm so glad that we're carrying on doing it and I'm so glad, as importantly, that the industry at the level that I work at is really starting to push to get, you know, much better female representation across the board. So what you're saying is that we need more female writers to be the male writers that they are. Is that what you're saying? That's not <laughs> everything I'm saying. <laughs> but it's a, a good, a good aspect to it. It's a twenty percent, twenty-five. He's <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Well, before we open it up to um, questions from the audience. I just think we should do like a little bit of a fun one where each of us say like one of our sort of female writers that we we really love and we feel like needs to get some more love. So recommendations, I think, is something good. So we start with you, Lucy, and work around. <laughs> and I'm not allowed to choose myself. I'm not allowed to choose myself, no. <laughs> no, I wouldn't anyway. Oh my goodness. Um Okay, I always bang on about Jen Williams, but I just think she's wonderful. I love her books. I think she's doing something really, really interesting in the genre. Um, I think she's what I what I really what I really like about her stuff is that it's um, you know she's not. Well, she, I would say that she's reinventing the genre. She's reinventing stuff that you know was made famous by like D and D things that kind of went through you know were made famous in the seventies and the eighties, but have become incredibly um, you know they've. they've the tropes become heavy and bogged down with really like outdated uh, gender assumptions and what she does is just completely refreshes them and, and does so in a really accessible way um, and, and also her books are great fun, um, really great adventures so I'm, and they're, they're quite unusual in the fact that they, they there is an overriding story arc but they're more um, almost like episodic, they kind of work in and that's quite unusual to find in, in the epic fantasy genre, it's just quite unusual. I know I bang on about her a lot but I think um, I think we've talked about Sarah Pembroke, so I can't I can't really drop her in again. Um, and I've mentioned Aliette Bordard, who I think is one oh, of the most extraordinary writers yes. at the moment. Absolutely stunning. And um, 
We've just published The House of Shattered Wings, which is wonderful, and The House of Binding Thorns is coming next year. But actually, if I'm picking one, I'd like to suggest Sherry S. Tapper, who is an absolutely extraordinary writer. Uh, two of her novels, Beauty and Grass, are amongst my favourite, probably of all time, uh, science fiction and fantasy novels. She engages with huge themes. She's been writing about um, feminism and uh, balance and finding an equality within society um, for, I think, almost 35 years now. She's a multiple award-winning author um, who is now in her 80s and still writing and still being nominated for awards. And her writing has changed across three and a half decades to take on new issues, to embrace new challenges and new opportunities. And I think she is genuinely overlooked. I'd love for young people to pick up her books and discover how fantastic her writing is. So for me, I'm going to pick two Titan authors um, <laughs> of, of our list, one of whom I'm the publicist for, one I'm not. Uh, the one I am a publicist for is Nina Allen, who has written some of the most beautiful short fiction over the last like decade that I've ever read. Um, I have had a... I, I know what her next novel, like, so we just republished The Race, which is her first official debut novel, uh, which is out from Yukon previously. We had the revised version. It's just amazing. Like, um, she plays with kind of domestic and world themes like no one I've ever read, actually. Um, and her next one, I'm just so excited for. The other one who I do not, I'm not the publicist for, <laughs> so it technically isn't my book. Uh, is Ren Warren, who uh, she was part of the kind of the new weird, I would call her. Like she's sweetheart as well, but uh, she's sort of taken cyberpunk and made it something completely different and something completely now. Um, it's a it should be a cult hit. It's it's I don't even know how to describe escapology. It's just wonderfully weird and brilliant. It, it is so great. I just, how do you describe it though? Post-apocalyptic cyberpunk heist novel. Exactly, it's like, <laughs> kind of, and sort of maybe, yes. but yeah. then it has this. Yeah, it's it's something completely different. Um, and then one of mine, someone who is not mine, um, I would also say I don't know if you can get the books over here, but she's completely worth investigating if you can get it on ebook. Um, if you like YA and horror, it's Hilary Mon like Hilary Monaghan, yeah. who just writes teenage girls like no one I've ever read um, and they're so spot on it's like someone gave Buffy the Vampire Slayer acid and a bad attitude problem like <laughs> she's just brilliant um, I really want her stuff over here but like she's really one of the most accurate depictions of kind of teenagers that I've ever read come from Hillary um, oh sorry no 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 no, no. I, I, I basically want to second every single recommendation so far. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed all of these books, and The, the Awesome by Hilary Monaghan in particular was well, one of... Well, Eva Darrow's over here. Beg pardon? But, but Eva Darrow's uh, was one of those novels where 50 pages in, I was I was kind of stunt casting the movie. Um, I wanted to add Mer Lafferty to the list. Mer mm -hmm. is, is one of the most versatile authors I've ever come across. She's worked uh, every length, and she's worked in very nearly every field. Um, her Heaven series is an extraordinary collection of novellas which explores major issues of faith and trust and honesty and romance and kung fu, all with the same delicacy and humour. Her shambling guidebooks are these, these incredible horror comedies about 
the travel guide for non-humans that is published in every city across the world and what happens when a very, very human lady ends up working as a researcher for it. Uh, and her new one, Six Wakes, is one of the best locked room murder mysteries I've ever had the privilege of reading. It's out next year and uh, it's clones in space and lots and lots of death. And it is just, it's a beautifully designed puzzle box of a novel. Anything by her is worth your time. Well, also, Tanef Lee, I think they need to do a shout out for. Yes. Who I think has been one of the most criminally overlooked writers who we lost not that long ago, actually. Um, definitely, if you love horror, Tanef Lee, just like no one else. Oh, um, well, I'll go for two. So, I mean, it's the same one. I, I bang on about her a lot because basically, uh, this woman got me into not only the genre, reading the genre, but also wanting to write my own stuff. So that's Robin McKinley, who still writes, and, you know, as a kid I picked up Hero in the Crown and I never looked back, and it was fantasy, and, and then, you know, into science fiction. I, yeah, that was, that was for me, it. And I just love the, the variation of her work, and, and she's great. And when I, it's, it surprises me every time I meet someone who doesn't know about her, so... I always like to, to give her a shout out. And then I'll say Melinda Lowe because um, I really like that. I just, I love fairy tales in general and I love uh, the way she's rewritten a very well-known uh, fairy tale, um, Cinderella, and included um, LGBT issues in there in a really non-patronising way. So I, I really think more people should read that as well. Can I just, I've been sitting here and you like made me go first, so I had to like, just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, usually like I sit here, but I am, um, Bex Levine's been here at Nine Worlds and I always oh, feel like people should talk about her books more because she's just, they're wonderful, it, it's, she's got two out, Smile is Fair um, is the first one, um, and it's just, it, it really is so unusual to find epic fantasy done in 400 pages, less than 400 pages, <laughs> and yet, you know, she, you get a lot of the kind of, you know, everyone's so used to seeing, you know, Brandon Sanderson tomes on the shelf, and, and Peter B. Brett, and, and, you know, you're kind of used to these, like, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred page epics, but she manages to do the same thing, she manages to construct um, the same kind of um, complexity, of, we, were talk, we were on a panel societal structures book today, and it was just to listen to what she was saying was absolutely fascinating. And she, it, it's completely unlike any other epic fantasy that I've read um, in recent times. And I, I, I feel like um, nobody really talks about her very much, um, which is just quite bizarre, really, because she's wonderful, a wonderful writer. Well, the problem with going last is that everybody keeps stealing all my ideas. So <laughs> I can't mention Pembroke, <laughs> I can't, can't mention Jane Williams, um, but it does mean I get to pick two as well. So I'm going to go for uh, Naomi Novik with her Uprooted. But it was absolutely brilliant, and I thought it was a really good example, a bit like Gaiman does, of taking some brand new subject matter and writing it in a way that felt like it was an old-time fairy tale, and I thought that was absolutely fantastic. But I feel that it doesn't really qualify because you said female authors that people haven't heard a lot about, and it's just been nominated for awards, so yeah. that doesn't quite work. And I'm going to cheat a little bit with the, the last one because I actually read a fantastic book by a bloke who caught um, the issues of women really well and uh, it's a horror book by Adam Neville and it's called No One Gets Out Alive and it's basically, it's 
It is horror, and it was a bit weird because the stuff is normally supernatural, but what he does on this is he focuses on what it's like to be a young woman who's run away from home and whose options are slowly getting cut off and she's running out of money on her phone and she can't get enough she can't get paid at a job to put down a deposit on the house, she can't get a current house where there's really horrible stuff going on and there are men around her who are incredibly threatening both physically, um, mentally, emotionally. And for me it was like it was just brilliant. It was written and it hit all my buttons. Um, but it was by a bloke and I thought that was really fantastic. It was a really good thing to be able to pull off. So a bit of a shout out for Adam Neville as, uh, as someone who, who definitely is a female call for it. Alright, well we were actually Hmm, well, sorry, we talked a lot, but uh, if people don't mind just staying a little bit longer. Uh, any questions? Questions? Yes. Purple. Purple shirt. Go. Marguerite Kenner. <laughs> You've been talking a bit about cover art and how it can form expectations, and I've noticed a trend in covers feel more towards gender neutral or even non-people as subjects. Do you think that's a trend that's starting to take off as issues of gender are becoming more prevalent in the decision to even pick up books? And that some publicists and companies are wanting to kind of generalize the experience that any reader would get from looking at the cover. I mean, by way of example, one that really sticks out in my mind is the tour novellas by Matt Wallace, the Cindy Moore series, where the covers are very color-saturated and kind of food-based, as that's the theme of the books. There are no characters. It's designed to be a very kind of neutral experience into the novel. So, people are expensive to paint. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is a, is part of no, it's a joke. Um, it's not necessarily the gender neutralizing. It will also be about content. Um, if you feel that something might be more crossover, that perhaps putting people on the front cover, it's such a stereotypically now fantasy sci-fi. That we won't always necessarily do it. Um, we will talk to we'll talk to bookshops. We'll get feedback. If they feel that they might have a larger market, then that would be a consideration. It's not necessarily why all the time, but it's. I've never seen it as an occurrence where it's been based on gender neutralizing. It's more been about the biggest market the book could potentially get. Yeah, I would I'd agree with that. That by by and large. It's about conveying the content of the book, however you feel it's best to do that. There are various conventions in, in cover art. I think um, space opera, you get the giant object in space, which is, I think, relatively neutral. I guess it can, it can look one way or the other, depending on the colours that are used or, or whatever else. Um, fantasy, I think people are always trying to reinvent the cover look. Um, so you get some things that come into favour and some things that come back out. Uh, sometimes you get a new trend because there's a new designer somewhere who comes up with some great ideas or they found an artist they really want to work with. So you suddenly get a fresh influx of, of a look. I'm not aware of it being specifically to appeal more to one gender than another. Though. I think if you look at the Game of Thrones covers they've been doing since the TV show, um, which are... Oh, sorry. No, just, say, yeah. just nicking your point. Um, <laughs> when they brought out those travel log covers where it kind of looked like, you know, it was like, like Westeros was an advert for um, <laughs> particular locations. You know, it was very, very strange. I talked to a few people who were not too sure about those. Yeah, I've definitely seen the, the newer Game of Thrones have looked way more kind of literary neutral than perhaps some of the older covers when you look back and that has been about a more mainstream market that doesn't necessarily want to have a 
bloke with a sword on the front cover when they're reading it on the tube, I think, is part of that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I'm engaged in a really interesting like, literary cultural experiment at the moment because my covers are being redone next year. And we are, um, as if everyone, if, if, has anyone seen the cover of Starborn, they'll know it's got a woman, uh, yeah. which was done as a photo shoot. Uh, and the new covers are um, having no woman. Oh. Uh, so they're going to go with a, what you might say, gender neutral, symbolic look instead. And the whole series has been designed to, to, to be like that. So I don't know, I haven't seen them yet because it's only just been cover free. Um, so I'm going to have to have another get together when I've got my new covers to see how people are reacting to them because I'd be really interested. Um, so that's just, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a completely different look. Well, I think that's really exciting. Definitely, fantasy covers do work there as well. That like they, a striking fantasy cover is a brilliant thing to have, um, and it gets the demographic who want it. But occasionally, when you start to see the more gender neutral ones, it's often as you've found when you're going out into that second edition version that you have your core audience like and it's like okay so we know this is great like what else can we do we've had feedback from like the bookshops yeah. i'd be really interested to see how it pans out <laughs> yeah yeah so the question i had is kind of related to the idea the research that shows that in a conversation between men and women that women talk about 30 percent of conversation the perception is they're dominating do you think that kind of misconception about sort of gender imbalance, do you think that exists all within your reading habits or that they're reviews or lists of top ten books? Do you think those ideas are more widespread? Personally, I think absolutely, because I thought that I had been reading a lot of women because I, I felt like I'd been making a conscious effort to do that. And then when I plugged it all into my spreadsheet, uh, I found that that wasn't the case at all. It was probably about that 30% mark. And for someone who really like, talks about, you know, we run this podcast, we, you know, I'm talking about this stuff all the time, to, to have me even feel that when I wasn't reading that many women is really quite telling and sad. I was disappointed in myself. But it goes back to that article that we talked yeah. about earlier about the, the little boy thinking that all of his, all of the books that his mother had read to him were by women, when actually only seven or ten percent actually were. But why did he feel like that? Yeah, it, it's bizarre. Where's that come from? Is it because women are only contributing thirty percent, but actually what they're saying is sticking in people's heads and remembering it and going away? And all the men, no offense to men in general, but just <laughs> thinking about business meetings. Have you seen the meme that's been going around about? Um, how women should speak in business meetings and like this is what the woman is actually thinking and this is what she should say and maybe that's what they're saying that women are actually saying more relevant things and the guys are going away and they're sort of taking it on board but not realizing that actually they said very little or they said very little it might why well, I'd like to think it was that but I'm not sure that it is and what does everyone else think it's it's a, a very very unusual one because it seems to be one of these perceptual issues which changes depending on where, on what direction you're looking at it mm. from. I, I mean, for for what it's worth, I think from my point of view, female authors and, and female editors and people working in this field at every level, uh, I, I think the perception of them talking too much is entirely erroneous. I, 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 and I think the, uh, the, the point that you made about how you know you can make a conscious effort to read more female authors and still it, it comes up short. 
I, I really start to wonder whether this is this is almost the, the inherited landscape that genre fiction in particular seems to have, where it's an industry which, certainly in the US, rightly or wrongly, is built on the backs of four old white guys. And it's very difficult to look past that. And I think it, we're all obligated to try and, and continue to try and look past that. I'll be honest, I, I, have, I have no idea. I think it's a fascinating question. I think it's something that's very important to raise and to keep talking about and to get people to engage in. Um, I don't know. It's something I have to go away and, and, and look at my team. And, and um, although You, you want to get a spreadsheet, don't you? I work, <laughs> I work in publishing. We're almost all women. So if mm. we're only contributing 30% of the meetings, why are we in there so long? <laughs> um, but it's something I, I genuinely want to, to look at more and to question and to continue questioning. And there's been some fantastic conversations here and at this convention about being aware of it. And if the first step is being aware, then often the second and third steps are natural action and natural change. Yeah. I think our Prime Minister might have something to say about it too. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back to your point about the spreadsheet. We were reading the, um, the, the, with the female authors that you had read. Um, you said that a lot of them weren't writing female protagonists, they were mm. writing ensemble or male protagonists. From a submissions point of view, do you think that that is because that's the prevailing meaning of being successful, so that's what people are writing regardless of the right of gender? Oh, I'm a publicist, I don't see submissions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Gillian. <laughs> I, I don't know, and again, this is, this is horrible speculation, but I wonder if there's an element of Western culture which sees a masculine pronoun as neutral, and that we see it in language, that we see it in some behaviours, and that as a result, sometimes when a writer reaches for a new character, the neutral position is male, a wonder, and that it's not, it's not in any way um, rejecting or ignoring or sublimating the female, it's simply a starting neutral. And that perhaps, if that is the case, and if there is any merit to that, and there may not be, um, that having writers and, and, and creative, creators of anything create something and then look at it and say, is this more interesting if I take some characters out of neutral? Whether that means changing sexuality or rethinking the relationships they're in, or bumping up an element of masculinity to that character or saying, I'm not going to change anything about this character at all, apart from put them in an actual gender neutral, or let's have this character become female without changing anything else. How does that affect the character? How does that affect the way you perceive what they're saying? I think there might be something interesting to do with being playful with that, and being conscious of it, and looking at some he's as a neutral rather than a he. Or indeed, some she's as a neutral rather than a she, and just see if it changes things. See if it see if it prompts more exciting characterization, or makes no difference at all. We never know. Uh, there's there's two really interesting examples of that exact thing that, that leap to mind. Um, the first is there's a fantastic uh, graphic novel and comic series called The Fuse, written by a chap called Anthony Johnston, and the idea is a huge space station, which is essentially a feral city in low Earth orbit. With main characters are two police officers who work it and you have the traditional kind of grizzled veteran who's seen it all and has been there since the station was built and the new guy 
except the grizzled veteran's name is Clementine Ristovich, and she's a 70-year-old immensely grumpy Russian woman. And it's so much fun just changing a, that, that gender completely because it turns the book into something completely different. And um, there's a, a Mike Underwood novella that Tora have just put out in a series called The Genre Knots. Uh, and I, I, my training is in uh, postmodernism and, and kind of metafictional stuff where stories which are aware that of, of their stories and can comment on the same. And as a result, these things are like catnip for me because each one is people being essentially stargated into uh, an established genre to fix a fictional problem. And there's a point about 25 pages into the first one where one of the, the, the they're getting tooled up to go into an old west world and one of the main characters hands one of the others um, a cowboy hat. And if, I, if I've got this right, the, the, he kind of looks at it and goes, no, I'll, I'll take the others, thanks. I, I stopped living as a man some time ago. <laughs> and it is the only mention of that. And the main character goes, huh, okay. And it continues. And it's one of the most gentle and completely obvious explorations of that I've ever seen. And every, every interaction you have with the character is defined by two lines of dialogue. And suddenly they are so much more interesting. And there's also a game I freely play with myself sometimes, which is any given TV show I watch, sometimes I will go, is this more fun if the genders are flipped? And the answer is almost always yes. Yeah. I find uh, Superman fascinating for that. Because yes. if you gender flip Superman, is he dealing with what are primarily defined as female issues? I just I'm like, yeah. which I find, I find really, really interesting. It's like Lois Lane only really notices him if he really dresses up and does something to impress her. <laughs> 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 nice. But going back to um, Gillian's idea of do people just reach for the neutral character? Yeah, is it possible we've got a cultural neutral? Yeah. I just well, no, I, I thoroughly agree with that because being a woman who writes in horror, I was asked to submit a pitch to a, for a novella to one of the publishers. And um, so I, I submitted one that I had to have in, my back, in the background, and it was um, about a father and a son. And he was like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds kind of cool. Um, and then actually I went around and came back and said, you know what? Um, I know this is really weird, but I've actually had a much better idea than I submitted to you. And what I've done is I've been working on another one, which again had been father and son, and I went, oh, hang on a minute, I want to have women in it, so I'm going to have them both as women. And I went, actually, that doesn't work either. And I just clicked one of them, and then suddenly having a man and a woman completely changed it from if you had two women, or if you had two men. But my first reaction in both pictures had always been to just go for a man, because that was what I was used to. And then instantly to go, oh, actually, no, I must do it completely the opposite. And go, I must have two women to make it even better. And then I went, well, no, that doesn't work either. And having a middle ground and going, actually, the best result are two women each. Maybe that's why the ensembles work so well as well, because you've got a nice, a nice mix of them. So should we have just got one, one last question? Yeah. Well, there is a, <clears throat> I'm a big spiritual journey fan. I've actually, <laughs> I keep thinking of one of my reasons, but then I decided to just start going nuts with it and started keeping loads of stuff to do with, like, people and stuff. And one thing I found really interesting when I was looking at it was I started going into bookshops and I was looking at sort of like what's on the recommendation, what's on the tables and what's on display. And in the fantasy and science fiction section, you never seem to get more than at most like 30% women on the table. And it's always the same women. It's always the Anne Leckies, always the um, John Mundell. And I was wondering, do you think that this is the same problem of sort of like 30% women talking all the people that you find? Or do you think there's some reflection of what actually the bookshop are being sent? Uh, it's very much up to the, the bookshop, I think. I know a lot of booksellers who fight extremely hard to increase the representation of women. 
and could go out of their way to order things and to place people on tables and to put on recommendations. Um, so I wonder if part of it is a reflection of what people are buying, which is what's determining what's in the store. Um, and that actually booksellers are working extremely hard on everyone's behalf to diversify it as far as possible. That's the impression I have from booksellers online, booksellers who are here, uh, Twitter conversation that we've had. Yeah, well, Lucy's a bookseller, so... I actually work for Waterstones. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I can say... Um, uh, the table thing, um, yeah, there's there's a lot more. The problem is that, um, you know, a lot of our buying is, that is now done centrally, and so they do look at figures, they do look at booksellers, and we end up having a lot of stock of things like um, Game of Thrones and the whole series of Game of Thrones. And because those books are so very big, and we have so much stock of them, our model stock is always at least five of each title, and so because we have multiples, they end up on the table because you just can't fit them in range. And the problem with that is that they start, you know, if you have a few, the same thing with Joe Abercrombie, um, the same thing with Brandon Sanderson, who's extremely prolific, um, and, and, and Mark Lawrence, and especially, and they, they, at least one of those, or two of them, have them in a really hard back part of the time. So, you know, as soon as you have even just four or five male authors who are in that top range, you know, who they're, they're best sellers, um, you're suddenly looking at extremely tight space for anybody else. And, and, you know, I have noticed that Waterstones has improved. I think there was a, a big furore that happened about 18 months ago where, um, you know, kind of some of you were saying, look, look, look at the representation. It's just terrible. We have hardly any women. So they have, I've noticed that in range, women's books now become, a, they're, they're just, there's a much wider selection, but still just one copy of each book, not ever multiples. And that simply must just boil down to sales figures. Uh, because bookshops, you know, struggling with sales, and you know, it's very difficult for me as an author and uh, a female author and as a bookseller to kind of sit in on the fence of this one and say, well, you know, they have to survive. Uh, but it's also really important that you know women are represented, you know, rather than just on the internet they need to be seen physically. Um, so I think it's a bit of a it's a difficult one, but it, it generally kind of boils down to you know uh, what what's selling. And I think it would be a nice experiment to actually maybe just buy in bulk some of the female authors and put them on tables and just see what happens because to be honest I'm pretty sure that when you give a book its soul table it, sell, it generally sells really well mm. and I, I speak from experience so my manager was really nice and gave me a table when my book came out and literally just went straight away mm. and it's because people um, take booksellers recommendations extremely seriously mm. so if you actually had that opportunity for more booksellers if you've got more books written by women and, and wrote recommended files for them and put them in prominent locations in the bookshop I think they would sell it's probably it's just it's a numbers game, you know. Um, yeah, usually decisions rest in higher hands than the booksellers. But again, as a reader, like that's something very positive you can do. If there's something you feel very passionate about, like buy your book from the Waterstones um, and discuss that with the bookseller. Tell them why you're buying it. Like I have personally been hand sold so many books. I can no longer go into Waterstones because otherwise I can't eat. Um, <laughs> But, you know, our booksellers in this country are some of the best assets that we have in publishing. Like, they're passionate, passionate people. Like, I actually multiple times tried to get a job at Waterstones and they never employed me. Um, so I had to it's go into really publishing. I know. <laughs> this is before, like, but yeah, so I had to go into publishing. Um, but I think that is, if that's something you do really feel passionate about, like, do push those, buy them from your, like, Waterstones. 
discuss why you're buying like the second series of an author that you really care about like it doesn't go unheard it really doesn't like we genuinely had word of mouth successes that have built in waterstones is all i will ever say about our kind of sales but i can think of at least two books that have been down to waterstones really loving it and those are booksellers not necessarily like getting a big push from head office but then also the booksellers getting behind it and then the customers coming in and saying, no, I really loved this. I want more. It can snowball. Yeah, absolutely. Word of, word of mouth. I mean, Fifty Shades would never have reached the success <laughs> it did, which is rather quite embarrassing, really, if it were for word of mouth. And word of, I think more booksellers talking about books they love. Then maybe those books will start appearing on tables and being bought in greater quantity. It really is just yeah. ramping up your passion for, for adult books or female, if, if it's, we're talking about female books, then don't count like you know my joke about like getting turned down multiple times by waterstones um it is serious these people are you know you get that job because you love books first and foremost um i think more than anything else actually like and you know i've, I've yet to meet a waterstones employee when buying a book who has not wanted to have a chat with me about the books that i'm buying and the books that they're loving this has been great i kind of feel like we've been personal sponsors for sarah pimber and waterstones this evening <laughs> That'll be £70 both. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. Sorry we ran over long, but I hope you enjoyed the panel. And thank you so, so much to our wonderful guests for coming on to this live edition of Breaking the Glass Slipper. And thank you to our audience for being nice and quiet. Yes, thank you. <laughs>